Section 37 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 9, Part 3. New Year's Day, 1866. We were all sitting with our punch and New Year's cakes, assembled round my father's table, when the first hour of this eventful year struck. It was a cheerful feast. We celebrated an engagement with the end of the old year, Conrad and Lily's. As the hand pointed to twelve, and Fou du Joie was fired in the street, my enterprising cousin threw his arm around the young lady who was sitting beside him, pressed, to the surprise of us all, a kiss on her lips, and then asked, Will you take me in sixty-six? Yes, I will, she replied, and I love you, Conrad. Then followed on all hands a clinking of glasses, embracing, handshaking, felicitations, and blessings without end. The health of the lovers. Long live Conrad and Lily. God bless your union, my children. Heartfelt congratulations, cousin. Happiness to you, sister. And so on and so on. A joyful and peaceful frame of mind took possession of us all. Perhaps not quite free of envy and all, for as death represents the most mournful and most lamentable of events, so love, the love which is sanctioned by the life-giving union, is the most joyful and the most enviable. I indeed could detect no trace of envy in myself, for happiness which had only just become a promise to the new bride had long since been my actual and firm possession. It was rather a feeling of doubt that crept over me. Such perfect bliss, as was prepared for me by Frederick, can hardly fall to poor Lily's lot. Conrad is, it is true, a very amiable man, but there is but one Frederick. My father brought to an end the tumult of congratulations by tapping on his glass with the signet ring on his little finger and rising to speak. He spoke somewhat to this effect. My dear children and friends, the year 66 begins well. To me it is bringing in its very first hour the fulfillment of a cherished wish, for I have long looked forward to having Conrad for my son-in-law. Let us hope that this prosperous year may also bring our Rosa under the yoke. And to you, Martha, and Tilling, a visit from the stork. To you, Dr. Bresser, may it bring many patients though this, as far as I can see, hardly goes with the many wishes for good health that we have all been exchanging. And to you, dear Mary, may it present, that is, provide that it has been destined for you, for I know and honor your fatalism, a pitched battle of plenary indulgence, or whatever it is that you are wishing for. You, my Otto, may it endow with eminent distinction in your final examination, and with all possible soldierly virtues and acquirements, so that you may one day become the ornament of the army and pride of your old father. And to the latter also I must try and get something good to come. And since he is one who knows no higher wish than for the good and the glory of Austria, I hope the coming year may bring some great conquest to the country. Lombardy, or who knows, the province of Silesia. One cannot tell to what all this is preliminary, but it is by no means impossible that we may take back again from the insolent Prussians that country which was stolen from the great Maria Theresa. I recollect that the close of my father's toast threw a chill on us. Lombardy and Silesia? 
Truly, none of us felt any pressing need for them. And the underlying wish for war, that is, fresh lamentation, more death pangs, that surely did not accord with the tender joyfulness which this hour, made sacred by a new bond of love, had awakened in our hearts. I even permitted myself to reply, No, dear father, today is the new year for the Italians, and Prussians also, so we will not wish any destruction for them. May all men in the year 66, and in the years that are to follow, grow more united and more happy. My father shrugged his shoulders. You enthusiast, said he pityingly. Not at all, said Frederick in my defense. The wish expressed by Martha has no taint of enthusiasm, for its fulfillment is assured to us by science. Better and more united and more happy are men constantly becoming, from the beginning of all things to the present day, but so imperceptibly, so slowly, that a little span of time, like a year, may not show any visible progress. If you believe so firmly in everlasting progress, remarked my father, why are you so often complaining about reaction, about relapse into barbarism? Because, Frederick took out a pencil and drew a spiral on a sheet of paper, because the march of civilization is something like this. Does not this line, in spite of its occasional twist backwards, always move steadily onwards? The year which is commencing may, it is true, represent a twist, especially if it seems likely another war is going to be waged. Anything of that sort pushes culture a long way back, in every aspect, material as well as moral. You are not talking much like a soldier, my dear Telling. I am talking, my dear father-in-law, of a general proposition. My view about this may be true or false. Whether it is soldierly or not is another question. At any rate, truth can only be, in any matter, one way. If a thing is red, shouldn't one man call it blue on principle because he wears a blue uniform, and black if he wears a black cowl? A what? My father was in the habit, if any discussion did not go quite as he liked, to affect a little difficulty of hearing. To reply to such a what by repeating the whole sentence was what few people had the patience to do, and the best way was to give up the argument. Afterwards, the same night when we had got home, I put my husband under examination. What was that you said to my father? That there was every appearance that there would be another fight this year. I will not have you go into another war. I will not have it. What is the use, dear Martha, of this passionate I will not? You would certainly be the first to withdraw it in the face of facts. By how much more visibly war stands at the gate, by so much more the impossible would it be for me to apply for my discharge. Immediately after Schleswig-Holstein it might have been feasible. Ah, that unlucky Schmidt and Sons! But now, when the new clouds are gathering, then you really believe that? I believe that these clouds will disperse again. The two great powers will not tear each other to pieces for those northern countries. But now that it seems threatening again, retirement would have a cowardly look. You must see that, too. I was obliged to be guided by this reasoning, but I clung to the hopeful phrase, these clouds will disperse again. I now followed with anxiety the development of political events, and the opinions and prophecies about them that were current in the newspapers and public speeches. Be prepared, be prepared, was the cry now. 
Prussia is silently preparing. Austria is silently preparing. The Prussians assert that we are preparing, and it is not true. It is they who are preparing. You lie. No, it is not true that we are preparing. If they prepare, we must prepare also. If we leave off our preparations, who knows if they will? And so the note of preparation sounded in my ear in all possible variations. But then, what is all this clang of arms for if one is not to take them in hand? I asked, to which my father answered in the old phrase, Sivis bachem, parabellum. We, that is, are only preparing out of precaution. And the other side? With a view of attacking us. But they also are saying that their action is only a precaution against our attack. That is malice. And they say that we are malicious. Oh, they say that only as a pretext, to be better able to make their preparations. So again, in endless circle, a serpent with his tail in his mouth, whose upper and lower end is a double dishonesty. It is only by producing an impression on an enemy who desires war that the method of fighting him by preparations, can be effective on the side of peace. But two equal powers, both desirous of peace, cannot possibly act on that system, unless each is firmly persuaded that the other is deceiving him with hollow phrases. And this persuasion becomes the more firm the more one knows that one is oneself hiding the same views as one charges on one's adversary, under similar phrases. It is not only the augurs, the diplomatists also know well enough about each other, what each has in mind behind the public ceremonies and modes of speech. The preparation for war lasted on both sides during the early months of the year. On March 12th, my father burst into my room, radiant with joy. Hurrah, he shouted, good news. Disarmament? I asked, delighted. What for? On the contrary. This is the good news. Yesterday, a great council of war was held. It was really splendid. What an armed power we are masters of. The arrogant Prussians had best take care. We are prepared any hour to take the field with 800,000 men. And Benedek, our best strategist, is to be commander-in-chief with unlimited power. I say this to you, my child, in confidence. Silesia is ours whenever we choose. Oh, God. Oh, God, I groaned. Must this scourge come on us once more? Who, who can be so devoid of conscience as from ambition, from greed of territory? Calm yourself. We are not so ambitious, nor are we greedy of territory. What we desire, that is to say not I exactly, for to me it would be quite the right thing to get our own Silesia back again, but what the government desire is to keep peace. That they have asserted often enough and the enormous strength of our active army as it comes out in the communication yesterday, made to the council of war by the emperor, will inspire all other powers with due respect. Prussia, to begin with, will certainly sing small, and leave off trying to speak in a commanding tone. Thank God. We shall have our say in Schleswig-Holstein too, and I am sure we shall never endure that the other great power should, by too great an extension of its dominion, conquer itself a preponderance in Germany. That is a matter which touches our honor, our prestige, as the French call it, perhaps our existence, but you cannot understand it. The whole affair is a contest for hegemony. 
The miserable Schleswig is the last thing in it. But this splendid council of war has shown plainly which takes the first place and which is to dictate conditions to the other, the successors of the little electors of Brandenburg or those of the long line of Romano-German emperors. I consider peace as certain. But if the others are going on still, to behave themselves in an impudent and arrogant way, and so to make war inevitable, then our victory is assured, and with it conquests are absolutely incalculable. It were to be wished that it would break out. Oh, yes, and you do wish it too, father, and the whole council of war seems to be with you. Then I should like it better if you said it out plainly. Only do not let us have this falsehood, this assurance to the people and the friends of peace, that all this purchasing of weapons and demands for war credits are only for the purpose of your beloved peace. If you are already showing your teeth and closing your fists, do not whisper soft words all the while. If you are trembling with impatience to draw the sword, do not make believe that it is only from the precaution that you are laying your hand on the hilt. So I went on talking for a while, with trembling voice and rising passion, while my father was too much taken aback to answer a word, and at last I ended by bursting into tears. End of section 37